Welcome to another episode of Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and crime. I'm Trish, your bartender for today. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender for today. So grab a cocktail and buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot! Beep beep! Welcome back to another round of drinks with your bartender, Trish. Like I said, since this was a two-part episode, we did the Bud Light Seltzer Sours. And in the first part, we did the Blue Raspberry and the Watermelon. So if you haven't heard our reviews on that, go back and listen. Today, we are doing the Green Apple and the Lemon. Which I have not tried yet. (laughs) I tried them with our friend that, like I said, he mixed the watermelon and the lemon together because he was impatient. Because <laughs> we had a we had a pack that whoever found them first, we would at least we would try to swim. We wanted to at least like try all of them. So we happened to find them first. He got impatient and didn't wait on us to try the other ones, and then was like, "Here, try this." And I was like, "I mean, I guess." <laughs> twist my arm but I really thought like I love all these flavors they were all so good in their own different ways I thought green apple was going to be my all-time favorite because I am a green apple person like that is one of my favorite flavors don't know why but it's one of my favorite flavors and blue raspberry topped it for me So I think if I had to pick, I'd probably go blue raspberry, green apple, and then the lemon, I actually really liked too. It tasted like lemonade to me. And we will say we heard a lot of... I was going to say people were shitting on lemon, and I was like, oh man, this is going to be terrible. And it actually wasn't. It... I really want to take this one and try to make it into, like, a lemon drop martini, like, situation because of how much, like, flavor it has. I think it would be an interesting thing to try to make it, like, another drink. Right. But my, like, ranking of the flavors for me was blue raspberry, green apple, lemon, and then the watermelon. Like I said, Sloan hasn't tried these two flavors so she can't really rank them but I know she's probably going to be about them. she's probably going to be blue raspberry maybe lemon then green apple and watermelon we will see and y'all can also see that on our social media because my first reaction will actually be recorded too. <laughs> I'm sorry we have impatient people in our lives <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm not sorry but like I said uh I know we live in Alabama Alabama. <laughs> yes. I can't speak today, apparently. We live in Alabama, so we're very limited on where we can find some things and what we can find. So these, at first, were very hard to find, but now I've started to see them pop up in stores that when I looked when we were trying to find them. So hopefully y'all should be starting to see them in stores, too. So I highly suggest them. They weren't, like, super expensive, 
run about the same price as like a truly pack and that so got an extra like 20 bucks should be able to pick them up and you got more than one drink mm -hmm. so highly suggest let us know what you think if you've tried them if you want to try them give us your ranking and the flavors and yeah we will kick you off to the episode all right welcome back to our part two of the jessica chambers episode and i know you're i know what you're thinking we did not discuss the man she was with the night of her murder quentin tellis well that's because i ran out of time <laughs> <laughs> that's because i ran out of time and there is quite a lot to say about quentin tellis so first I feel like it's important to note it, note that Quentin did not, not that this part's important to note, but the next part after this, but Quentin did not do well in high school. He ended up dropping out. He just felt like he was bullied by his teachers and his peers, and he very well might as, be, might as well have been. I cannot confirm or deny that, but he left high school. Shortly after he left high school, he started running into trouble with the law, he was eventually arrested, and he was actually released from jail on a burglary charge in October of 2014, which, if you remember, Jessica was murdered on December 6th of 2014. So he was released like a month and a half, two months before her murder. More fishy than that to me. He met Jessica at M&M, the gas station, on Thanksgiving, or like the day before, the day after, somewhere around there, around Thanksgiving, just a couple of weeks before she was murdered. They exchanged phone numbers on November 29th. November 29th to December 6th. They started hanging out pretty quickly, and I can say that because there is a specific text from Quentin on December 3rd, where he texts Jessica asking her for sex. For sex. He said, quote, I'm horny. She said, quote, oh, Lord. <laughs> and like, once again, this is one of those things that I just feel like I relate with her so much because this is what the fuck boys were texting back then. This was once, like I said, this is right whenever my, my now husband and I got together. So I was texting these same fuck boys. Like I was in North Mississippi. I feel like this could have been me which is why yes. this hits me so hard but texting her i'm horny her oh lord him can i get some s-u-m some not some yeah and then things like come lay with me so we know that jessica was in a relationship with travis at this time like her mom has confirmed it she was constantly still talking to him on the phone this was just a guy that she met at a gas station that she was trying to hang out with and, like, yeah, just chill and smoke and be friends. Meanwhile, he's constantly, hey, come over. Hey, I want to get laid. Hey, I'm horny. Hey, hey, hey. It was always about his fucking cock. It was never about, like, yeah, anything more from his point of view as far as the text messages are concerned. So, it's also somewhat important for you to know that Quentin also has a girlfriend at this time who lives in Monroe, Louisiana. Yes. He's that douchey. Yes. Yep. So, we're going back to December 6th. I left some of these details out because they were specific to Quentin. And I didn't necessarily, like, want to 
persuade y'all <laughs> until we got here, but now we're here. So back to December 6th at 7.46 p.m., Quentin calls his girlfriend in Monroe while he walks to his sister's house to borrow his sister's car. Unfortunately, because of one, the time period that this happened, two, like I said, this is a honky-tonk gas station. I'm surprised they even have security footage. And the distance between the gas station and the house, you can't really make out who the driver was, the car tag, or anything like that. We just can see the blob figures of somebody leaving the car and whatnot. Yeah. So, that's then. The car leaves, and then it ends up driving back by the gas station, speeding off towards Batesville at 8 p.m. So, a reminder... That Jessica's phone shuts off at 8.04, the 911 call is placed at 8.07, and this car that I am assuming that Quentin is in, because it looks like his sister's car, has left the scene and is already flying past to leave town shortly before the phone call is made, which five minutes, seven minutes, that's plenty of time for everything to go up in flames and make a big difference cause a scene. Another funny little thing is that while Quentin has ignored his girlfriend's phone calls and text messages literally all fucking day while he's been in with been with Jessica, that's what I'm trying to say. He's ignored his girlfriend all day while he's been with been with Jessica. All of a sudden, between 8 and 8:23 p.m. that day, he calls her five separate times. <sighs> At 8.57, Quentin reappears at Eminem gas station in a brand new outfit. Later on, he even admits to the investigators that he showered before changing because he just felt nasty. So are you hiding evidence, sir? Right. Once again, just super fishy. You can also see that while Quentin is there, there is some other random guy outside of the gas station dramatically telling a story And just from, like, how his hands are going, it looks like he's talking about a car on fire. Also knowing just, like, what we know about what's going on. But I talk with my hands a lot, so I can very vividly see somebody being like, I was going to say, I was like, I mean, I'm Italian. We talk with our hands. (laughs) It's a thing. Yeah. So, it, it looks like this man is talking about the car being on fire down the road. Quentin walks straight past him, does not make eye contact, doesn't make a second look towards him or anything, just walks straight past him, ignores him. And he learns later that who the man was talking about was Jessica, the the girl that he had just been with earlier that day. <laughs> Despite finding out that it was Jessica in this horrible accident slash incident slash whatever you think of it at the time that it was happening, Quentin never made a single attempt to text her or call her or check on her at all. This is the same boy. And yes, I'm going to call him a boy because he's acting like a damn boy. This is the same boy that texted her earlier in the night saying, Hey, bae, my friend is coming over tonight. I can't talk to you. Good night, sweet dreams. (laughs) and now you can't even grow the balls to text her to check on her right instead he deletes her phone number 
and all of the text messages except for that last one from his phone. So all of those text messages saying, I'm horny, can I get some, come lay with me, from the past two weeks of him knowing her are all of a sudden gone from his phone. And all that's left is, hey, bae, I can't talk to you. Good night, sweet dreams. Because that doesn't look fishy. Oh, in my notes, I sound like Red Foreman right here again. I'm like, this this dumbass. <laughs> like, there are phone logs. This is still 2014. Like, they can pull up your text message logs. They can pull up the times. They can pull up the towers. And you think that by you deleting the messages off of your phone, and if he is the guilty one in this, that you burning her phone, that they would not find these messages between you two. Okay. Dumbass. So, the police questioned Quentin a total of five different times. The first time they talked to him was, like, pretty much immediately after the murder, he denied seeing Jessica at all that night. He admitted that they had hung out that morning, but that she dropped him off, went yeah. home, and that was it. He didn't see her at all after that. He also said that they were just friends. Nothing had happened between them. That was it. Just texted, occasionally hung out, nothing more. So when the cops showed up to his mom's house the second time to question him... He actually admitted to having sex with Jessica. Just one time. Just one time. He pointed out a spot behind his mom's house in the field where they could pull Jessica's car and you wouldn't be able to see it from the house. And he said that that was where they went. They pulled the seat back and they did their thing. You know. Yeah. You know. So after he points this out, that this was how they had sexual intercourse at least one time. That's all Quentin's owning up to is that it only happened once. They recalled that when they found Jessica's car burnt up, the seat was let back. <laughs> Just like Quentin was saying it was whenever they had sex the one time in her car. Dumbass. Mm -hmm. But Quentin insisted that they did not have sex that day. It was only the one time and he was done with it. But once again, the text messages show that you have been hounding this girl for sex for like two weeks. Yes. So for you, no, it was not a one and done thing. For her, it absolutely could have been a one and done thing. Because remember, she has her boyfriend in jail. So it's very likely that she had sex with Quentin and then felt guilty about it and was like, this is never going to happen again. Yeah. And meanwhile, he's like, hey, this happened once. It was great. Let's keep it happening. Your, your man ain't here. My lady ain't here. Let's just keep things going. But anyways, so that was the second time they questioned him. The third time investigators went to question Q. Do you want to guess where he was? Who knows? I feel like this just keeps taking a turn. Quentin was in Monroe, Louisiana, where his girlfriend lives, but he was actually in jail <laughs> for fraud charges. So they questioned him about Jessica again, and they even go back further this time. They're like, hey, do you remember that night, like a few nights before she died? It, it looks like y'all went to Taco Bell together. Like the phone records show y'all went to Taco Bell together. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, I did not go to Batesville with that girl. I never did that. And they were like, 
But no, like we have the text messages and we have the cell phone proof. And this was the night, like, well, this was one of the times that she texted him and was like, I'll eat with you if you pay for it. Yeah. So then his comeback was, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. I did meet up with her, but I met up with her and I gave her cash so she could get dinner. But like, I, I wasn't riding with her that night. I literally, I just met up with her to give her money to eat with. <laughs> yeah. Convenient. Oh, yeah, this was the day of the murder. I'm getting lost. I'm sorry. Um, But anyway, so this was the day of the murder. So he's like, no, I wasn't with her. Like I said, she dropped me off at two. But I did see her again just that one time at Taco Bell. I gave her money to eat with. And then Big Mike and I hung out in Batesville before heading back home. The cops are like, bro, do you swear? Like, you swear on your mama's life that this is the truth. He's like, man, I swear on my mama's life this is the truth. I was with Big Mike that night. So they go and they question Big Mike. And Big Mike is like, there's no way that I was with Quentin that night. And they're like, are you sure? Like, how are you sure? Because this is several months ago at this point. And he goes, I'm sure because that was the night of the Titans and the Giants playing for the Nationals. And I went to that game in Nashville with my cousins. Like, I was at that game. I can show you the ticket stubs. So he shows them the ticket stubs. And they're like, okay, well, clearly... You were in Nashville, which means that you were not with Quentin. And so they go back to Monroe. They question Quentin again. And he finally caves and says, you're right. I was with Jessica that night. We went to Taco Bell. And then we went back to my place in Jessica's car. But we did not have sex that night. We didn't. She was definitely gone from my house by 7 p.m. at the latest. Like, I did not see her after 7 p.m. So we've gone from him saying he did not see her after 2 p.m. He did not see her after 6 p.m. And now he did not see her after 7 p.m. And it's just like the more evidence that they find, the more that he's like, oh, no, you're right. You're right. But this is actually what happened. Yeah. So after authorities confront him with the truth of the cell phone data that proved that the two were together up until the point that Jessica was lit on fire. What's it called? Mm -hmm. He's in Louisiana, but he's under arrest in Louisiana for the fraud charges. So, like, at this point, he is bouncing back and forth between the two states with charges. So, July 15th, 2016, Tellis appeared in court and pled not guilty to murdering Jessica Chambers. That leads us to his first trial, which began on October 10th, 2017. Yes, I said first trial, unfortunately... Because this gets real dumb. But anyways. So, on the defense side, we have Darla Palmer, an attorney out of Jackson, Mississippi. Whoop, whoop. (laughs) Whoop, whoop. Anyways. So, Darla was retained by Quentin's family. It was his mom and her brother and her sister that raised the money to hire Darla to represent Quentin. And then prosecution was done by the state, of course. But... Both sides gave their opening statements, and in the opening statement, I want to say, like, Darla came out fighting, (laughs) and I, she is the defense, I am against Quentin in this case, but I am also for a boss-ass bitch, (laughs) and this is a boss-ass bitch. She shows up in court, and she's like, hey, I agree with them, somebody did a horrific crime here, but do you want to know what I know? 
I know that it was not my client because Jessica herself said that Eric did this to her. And do you know who is on trial today? It's not Eric. It's Quentin. Does that even sound like Eric? <laughs> and everybody in the courtroom is like, <gasps> so boss ass bitch. We applaud her for that. Yes. Prosecution calls their first witness after this to the stand, and it is Jessica's mother. And she brings a motion to the court, of course, tells her truth. And then they follow her up with the first responders from the night of the murder. And a lot of these first responders really hammered home that they heard quote-unquote clearly Jessica saying Eric or maybe Derek but it definitely wasn't Quentin or Tellus but it was also at first I didn't really understand why the prosecution was calling all of these people up whenever they were clearly saying something that was against the prosecution's case but at the same time their statements were very powerful because they were very very emotional the one of the first guys on the scene was somebody that had watched Jessica grow up and he got up on the stand and before he was even up on the stand his eyes are red and puffy you find out during his testimony that he actually left the fire department two weeks after this happened because this just destroyed him so much yeah and so like at first, I was kind of like, why did the prosecution call these people up? But then, one by one, you watch these grown-ass adults get up on the stand and just crumble while they tell the testimony of coming upon this scene and watching this young woman stumble out on fire, this young woman that they've watched grow up. And the first guy that talked, he was like, literally, my first thought was that I needed to cover her up because she was on, she was only in her panties and... You know, I, I didn't want her to be disgraced like that. And so he really took her under his wings. And like I said, like, you could just, you can look at this man's testimony and tell that this thing tore him the fuck up. Yeah. So while the logical side of me is like, why would you take the chance of calling so many people back to back to back that interfere with what you're trying to drive home? On the other hand their emotional side of this testimony was so strong and so powerful that I feel like prosecutors hoped that it would weigh out in their favor. Yes. So when <laughs> Jessica's best friend Keisha testified, the prosecution had her focus on this one moment that happened a few days before the murder. And it was another morning, just like the day of the murder, where her and Jessica and Quentin were driving around town smoking and just hanging out, chilling. And they dropped Quentin off across town. So Jessica and Quentin get out of the car and Quentin goes to hug Jessica. And Keisha just remembers that Jessica kind of looked very uncomfortable and like she was almost fearful of Quentin in that moment. Yeah. And... I mean, yeah, that could possibly be true, but also in my mind, in my heart, I kind of feel like that is the best friend looking back on instances that happened trying to look for puzzle pieces. So like, yes, that could have happened. Maybe Jessica was just upset with Quentin in that moment. We don't really know, but I thought that that was an interesting thing to point out here. The defense then argued their rebuttal was that the phone records were not reliable. 
that yes, their phones were in similar locations, but of course, Quentin's phone is going to be in a similar location to the gas station because he lives at the gas station. Yeah. It was close to the car because that was nearby to his sister's house and blah, blah, blah. Once again, this is rural bumfuck Mississippi. So, like, the more towers that you have in an area, the more precise the location can be. But whenever you are in a rural area, you don't have as many towers. So those towers cover a lot more ground than they do in more populated areas. Yes. So like, it, it's 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 something, but it is not definitive. The defense, of course, also argued the Eric Derek point of view, and that of course Quentin's name was not Derek, and that or Eric, and that the wrong person was on trial. So, like, a little asterisk here, a reminder of how the U.S. justice system works. If you're not from here, or you're not good with these classes, but... It's not a good thing. All you need to be found not guilty is to have reasonable doubt in the jury. And that is exactly what this defense attorney is doing, is planting reasonable doubt. A lot of this evidence is very circumstantial. So, like, I'm not blaming her. I'm just pointing out that while these things are adding up, they are all circumstantial evidence still. There's nothing concrete. There wasn't a murder weapon found on him. There was not yes. blood found on his clothes. There was not gasoline found on his clothes. It was not him seen in that security footage. So, it's all reasonably doubtful. Yes. Unfortunately. They also called in a forensic anal analogist from Brandon, Mississippi, whoop, whoop, that, that whenever they asked her about the keys that were found, she admitted that there were at least five sets of DNA found on Jessica's keys. One, of course, was Jessica's. One was Quentin's, but there were at least three other male DNA sets on her car keys. And while that is helpful, it's not helpful because Quentin acknowledges that he used Jessica's car to go to the liquor store at one point. I mean... So he yeah. admits to using her car, and there's footage that backs up that, but it's not proof that he drove her car or used her or had her car keys in his hands on the day of the murder. And that's where the problem lies in that. Yeah. They would need to prove that it was his DNA from the day of the murder for that to count. In the end, the jury could not get over the Eric Derrick situation. There was also, honestly, like a huge racial divide in the county, in the city, in the state. So it, it just, it was a really, I mean, it's still hard times, but that's kind of what it came down to in this case was race. And so it was a split jury, and in classic dumbfuck Mississippi fashion, these jurors come out the first time and hand over their decision, and one of the jurors goes, that's not what I said, because the judge says, oh, he's not guilty, and somebody was like, that was not my vote, and the judge was like, you voted him guilty, and he was like, yeah, and then somebody else was like, yeah, I did too, yeah, I did too. And the judge goes, I told y'all before you went back that this had to be a unanimous decision. Like, that's how this works. And they're like, oh, we didn't understand the rules. Right? <laughs> so then, like, what? <laughs> so, 
So then they go back for a second time. They come back out. Somebody else, somebody different reads the results. Same things, same thing happens. The judge says not guilty. Several people are like, including the woman that read the results goes, that's not what I said. I thought he was guilty. I thought he was guilty too. I thought he was guilty too. And the judge goes, I thought we just went over this (sighs) and here we are doing this again. So he sends them back for a third time. They come back out and they're like, man, we just can't come to a conclusion. And the judge is like, I respect that, man. So then it's it's a mistrial at that point. Oh, and they let Quentin go. They let Quentin go, but not for long. Also, remember, he's still facing those fraud charges in Louisiana. So he's not completely out of... Yeah, he's not out of the woods. He's not out of the woods, yes. He's got a lot still going on. So then Mississippi comes back a year later for trial number two. This time, the prosecutors bring in a speech pathologist to try to help strengthen their case. They bring back all of the first responders again, and they even bring in Dr. William Hickerson, who was the doctor, the, the like head doctor from the burn unit that Jessica Chambers was admitted to the night of her murder. So between the speech pathologist and Dr. Hickerson, they both kind of said that like, it would have been near impossible for her to really speak. Her body had over, her body was burnt over 93% of the skin. And the way that they talked about it, that made it make the most sense to me is that because so much of her skin was burnt and to the extent that it was burnt, that her skin pretty much became a leather corset all over her body. So her lungs were not able to expand. She was not able to breathe. Like pretty much whatever stance she was in was how she was stuck. Everything was suffocating in. And yeah, that just sounds really painful to me. I've tried corsets before. I can't imagine a corset on my entire body. Especially considering that the doctors noticed that like it seemed to she seemed to have had gasoline poured straight into her mouth. There were direct burns on her tongue and like the inside of the cheeks and stuff. But also the doctor that examined her believed that a lot of the dark patterns on her brute on her uh, stomach were from bruising, which led them to believe that she was assaulted before she was lit on fire. So the prosecutors then kind of argued the case that, you know, Quentin asked for sex again. Jessica said no again. And he got angry and assaulted her, probably strangled her, thought he killed her, and didn't know what to do except for try to get rid of the evidence by setting it all on fire. Unfortunately, this trial played out exactly the same as the first trial. The jury came back two different times, and then they finally were like, hey, we we cannot agree on a verdict for this case. Like, we just... A lot of us think he's guilty, but there is definitely a reasonable doubt here. So, then Mississippi ships Quentin back to Louisiana because I have been hiding something for you, from you. 
he is not only being investigated for a fraud charge in Louisiana, but he is actually being investigated for another murder charge in Louisiana at the same time. This one is of Ming Chen, Ming, Ming Chen Chao, who was a foreign exchange student from Taiwan at the University of Louisiana Monroe. Most of her friends called her Mandy. Mandy's neighbor called the called the police reporting a foul odor coming from her apartment. When they showed up to check it out, they found her apartment messy as fuck. There was clearly a struggle there. And whenever they went into her bedroom, they actually found Mandy's body on the floor, stabbed over 30 times. And this was on July 19, 29th, 2015. So Mandy was tortured with several small cuts until she gave up her PIN number and where her card was to her attacker. He then continued to stab her deeper and deeper and brutally murdered her, then stole her Chase Bank debit card and then left her body without a second thought. She was left in her apartment for 10 days in the southern Louisiana heat before she was found on August 8th, which coincidentally, August 8th, was the day that Quentin got married to Chiquita Jackson, his girlfriend from Monroe that we mentioned in the last episode. During the investigation of Mandy's apartment, they recovered a Walmart pharmacy receipt that led them to check the security footage at that Walmart, and they found footage of Quentin and Mandy together in the store. You don't say... A neighbor also walked over to the police and they were like, hey, I noticed this strange car hanging out outside, so I jotted down the license plate number. And yeah, here you go. It was here on the 27th and the 28th for sure. I'm not really sure past that, but I did notice it on those two dates. And I also overheard Mandy arguing with a male in her apartment around that time too. And the guy that I saw coming out of her apartment just gave me, like, creepy vibes in general. So the police double-checked the license plate, which led them back to... Quentin! <laughs> Who's shocked? Who the neighbor positively identified as the creep from the apartment complex. The police also found a receipt in Quentin's apartment... For a seven cent charge that was charged to Mandy's credit card. And records showed phone calls from Quentin's phone to Mandy's bank on the day of her murder. His GPS for his phone also aligns with the location of Mandy's apartment at the time of her murder as well. This man is just not smart. Or he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time all the time. There was also an ATM charge that appeared on Mandy's bank statement on the same day that Quentin and his newlywed wife were reported to be in Vicksburg. And the, the ATM charge was in Vicksburg. Quentin had tried to, tried to get money out of ATMs in Monroe for several days before that, but they all just didn't really work out. But he was able to get money out of the ATM in Vicksburg. I don't know how that worked out. But the police also found tennis shoes inside of Quentin's apartment that had been sprayed white. Underneath the white spray paint, there were dark stains that they believed to be blood stains. At the time of all of this going down, Quentin did not have a job. 
he was the caretaker for his stepson. And whenever he wasn't taking care of his stepson, he was out on the town with his cousin-in-law, Eric Hill. Does that name sound familiar? Because I got theories. Anyways, when Eric was questioned by police, he pointed the finger at a man named Curtis Lemon. Eric said Curtis told him about how he had stabbed Mandy until she gave up her PIN number to her debit card, and then he finished her off by stabbing her to death. Eric even picked Curtis out of a lineup, but he refused to initial the police report about it. When Eric was shown a lineup with Quentin in it, he said he did not know a single person in that lineup. We'll come back to that, too. When police confronted Eric and said they knew that he knew Quentin, Eric changed his story, admitting to framing Curtis. He claims that he was exchanging quote-unquote war stories with his new cousin when Quentin told him about robbing a woman of her credit cards, and then he beat her and stabbed her to death. Quite a war story, if you ask me. Quentin was originally held without bond in Louisiana on a second-degree murder charge and for an unauthorized use of the Chase debit card. In 2016, he did plead guilty to the debit card fraud charge, but he absolutely denied the murder charge altogether. So over the debit card charge, he was sentenced to 10 years in Louisiana because he was a habitual offender from his Mississippi record. And during his sentence for that is when he was extradited to Mississippi for his two trials. So even though he had the two mistrials and technically he can walk free in Mississippi, he was still sent back to Louisiana to face the charges for this. And that's where he still is today. As of October 6, 2021, Quentin was, was scheduled. Ugh, that was hard. Quentin was scheduled to stand trial for murder of Mandy on January 3rd of 2022. That was the most recent article that I could find. And I searched high and low so hard to find an update on this that literally my laptop's hard drive crashed. <laughs> like, I do not have a laptop after researching this case so hard. So, I did not find any current up-to-date news updates for this as of February 7th. I have set Google alerts for this because like I said, this is a case that has stuck with me for a long time. So I'm very curious to see how it plays out. So I have Google alerts set for Quentin Tellis in general, specifically for the Mandy trial and even a possible third retrial for Jessica Chambers. But as for right now, I just feel like we can all rest easy knowing that he is in jail serving for his credit card fraud charges while Mississippi and Louisiana hopefully work their asses off to get him convicted on one of these murder charges. If he is actually guilty, I do think he's guilty. If he's not guilty, I just want for each of these families to have answers. It's only fair for both of them. But yeah, I, I just, I truly want answers and I hope that we see them sometime soon. I also have another little side note tangent that I kind of went off on earlier. But Eric Hill is a name that came up a little while ago. Eric is Quentin's cousin-in-law by marriage. But he also coincidentally dated Quentin's sister for quite a few years. They even have each other's names tattooed 
on themselves. So Quentin's sister has Eric's name tattooed on her hand. And I just, like, is it possible that maybe he was in Mississippi at the time of the murder? Maybe it was him. Maybe he was with Quentin. Maybe he showed up. It could have been him. There was also a accusation from Darla Palmer, the, def- the defense attorney, saying that the prosecution tried to bribe slash threaten a witness into saying that Quentin introduced himself to Jessica as Eric. And there was really no proof here or there that I could find on that. So, I mean... It, it might be possible that Jessica knew Quentin as Eric from the get-go and then later learned his name was Quentin and maybe that's why she had said Eric. I still feel like she said Wreck. Like, that just makes the most sense to me personally. But yeah, another I have a few other interesting, like, side notes about Eric. But first, he was actually arrested for robbing a convenience store on Christmas Day in 2019 where he found himself in custody at Wichita Correctional Center, which is also where our friend Quentin Tellis is in custody at the same time. So remember that Eric had told the police that it was Quentin that had told them the details of Mandy's murder. Well, while he's in jail with Quentin, he all of a sudden recants his whole statement and says that he was pressured into stating that it was Quentin. And it's a notarized letter. It's been filed with the courts officially and everything. But I just find it really fishy. I found a little proof that Quentin did help him write that letter, helped edit it and stuff like that. But I definitely find it just odd that he recants as soon as he's around Quentin again. And then the last little thing that I want to mention is that whether it was Eric or Quentin, The Louisiana police definitely know that it was one of them. And while we are all leaning towards Quentin, the whole little Eric question with the Jessica case kind of throws a little wrench in the whole thing. You know, when Eric was questioned by the Louisiana police, he knew the amount of times that Mandy had been stabbed. He knew that she was stabbed very shallow-like until she gave up the PIN number to the debit card. He just, he knew a lot of details that the police were holding close to their chest until the killer revealed themselves. And then in walks Eric Hill, revealing himself or his cousin. But either way, I think it's definitely one of them. I think that it could have been either one of them for the Jessica case too, like, They have a definite history there, and I don't know what the hold is. I don't know who has the hold over which one, but it definitely seems like there is something between those two that ties these two cases together, and I cannot freaking wait until we have answers for this. The last little asterisk that I have for this is a sad note, and I do hate to end this case on this, because like I said, I just... This case gets me. I don't have many emotions, but this case tugs at all of the heartstrings I have left. But Jessica's mother actually passed away in late October 2021, which is very, very recent. 
and she passed away without knowing what happened to Jessica. She was Jessica's main champion. She ran the Facebook group. She was the one always talking to the news and she even went to oxygen and the investigation discovery and, you know, just went above and beyond to try to find the answers of what happened to her daughter. And unfortunately she never got them, but hopefully they are together now. Hopefully they're happy now. And she's just not suffering anymore from losing two of her children. But that is my case today of Jessica Chambers. It is, well, today and last time, it is definitely a wild ride. I would love, 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 love to hear your theories, your thoughts, your questions. Like I said, this is a case that has haunted my mind for like seven, eight years now. And I just, I would love for us all to get to the bottom of it eventually. But yeah, with that, we're going to kick you off to the last call. I hope you enjoyed this episode, this case, and see you in a minute. Welcome back to another last call with your bartender, Trish. And this is for part two of our Jessica Chambers case. And we really hope you enjoyed the case. It was a bit of a doozy. So, like I said, we try to do some last calls that kind of make things a little lighthearted, maybe funny little things and that. This one is some, like, true crime and, like, criminal fun facts. I'm not going to do all of them, but I'm going to do some of them. I was reading them, and some of them are really funny. So those are the ones I'm going to try to focus on. And the first one is, did you know reindeer make excellent getaway cars? Uh, yeah, have you not seen Santa Claus leave <laughs> the freaking roofs in the middle of the night? Uh, Come on now, everybody knew that. In Siberia, people often use reindeer to escape from crime scenes. The Russian police <laughs> are now having <laughs> to ask for their snowmobiles to be replaced with reindeer. <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> uh. I was like, a Mom, reindeer. Did, Mom, did Santa just rob a bank? <laughs> oh, I can just see. I feel like Alaska. You'd be the only one in like the U.S. that'd be able right. to do the reindeer thing. I mean, if moose were not so terrifying. And so large. <laughs> that would make them a great getaway vehicle. <laughs> It's, it's their temper. Right. That's the problem. <laughs> but yes, reindeer. Reindeer are the way to go, apparently. So I guess I need to tell Logan, stop looking for a penguin for me and get me a reindeer. I think the penguin's the better option here. <laughs> One of the other little fun facts I had was, did you know Cowboy Bob was known for robbing banks without a weapon and escaping within 60 seconds. The cops eventually caught Bob, who was actually a middle-aged woman in a hat, sunglasses, and fake beard named Peggy Jo Tallis. Hmm. 
after serving her prison sentence, she robbed another bank, got caught by police, pulled out a toy gun, and was shot dead, having never once used a weapon for her crimes. Ah, like, that's horrible. It's horrible, but also I'm like... The toy gun got me. Uh, another little fun fact. During the Depression era, there was a gangster named John Dillinger who survived a shootout with FBI, escaped from jail with a wooden gun, robbed police stations, had plastic surgery to change his face and remove his fingerprints, and led the government on a year-long chase that cost them four times the amount he had ever stolen. Sounds like the government. <laughs> that is some gangster shit. <laughs> I mean, I can't believe he did plastic surgery and got rid of his fingerprints. Right? Extra. Here's another little fun fact. Glitter is so unique that it can be effectively used as forensic evidence. Oh, shit. I'm fucked. <laughs> right? I am fucked. So, I wear glitter uh, on everything. I was going to say, so um, be aware of glitter <laughs> because there are thousands of different types of commercial glitter. Any glitter particles found on a suspect can be compelling evidence that they were at a crime scene where an identical glitter particle was found. Okay, well, I'm never giving up glitter, so clearly I'm giving up my criminal lifestyle. <laughs> I was like, well, we all know how glitter works, so, um... Glitter is like the herpes <laughs> glitter. Of the art world. I love the, what was the one, like, joke? You and your friends are getting ready. One wears glitter. How many are now wearing glitter? Everyone. <laughs> I was that friend. I am that friend. Oh, there was one more. Where is it? Oh, here it is. This is gonna be the last one I do, and I just... It's funny, but it's, like, not, but it was just, like, what well, I went, well. <laughs> so, in, in the 1980s, in Scotland, <laughs> there were dangerous gang wars between rival ice cream truck drivers. Hmm. The Glasgow ice cream wars erupted when drivers began delivering other items with their ice cream to low-income housing developments like groceries, toilet paper and drugs, and stolen goods. The scuffles over territory eventually escalated from violence and arson to murder. Alright then. So, over ice cream. I was gonna say, ice cream trucks, not as innocent as they appear. I mean, I would fight over ice cream too, so no judgment for me. <laughs> but yeah, those are my little, uh, Fun facts, like I said, some of them were a little funnier than others, mm -hmm. but interesting non like all mood lightning in the same. Yes. But yeah. We hope you enjoyed this and uh be sure to check us out every Tuesday and Friday. We always try to make sure we're posted on time. Forgive us if we're a little late. <laughs> it's been it's been a busy couple of uh months these past couple of months. <laughs> so we're getting into our busy season at work, too, so it's yes. a little draining, but um, the episodes are definitely posted to our podcast. Social medias are a little bit behind, but feel free to follow us over there so you can catch the stuff when it is posted. 
we post recipe cards and reels of the cocktails on Instagram. We post TikTok recipes. Um, everything's also cross-posted to Twitter. Those are all tequila she wrote across the board. If you have any questions, if you have any case suggestions, cocktail suggestions, any love letters, adoring fan mail, whatever you want to send us, our email is tequilasherote at gmail.com. We also have Patreon set up for as little as $2 a month. You can get a free bonus episode and you'll get ad-free episodes once those all start up. And then if you pay a little more, then you get different tiers, have different things. So there's Rooting Paradise, there's a haunted episode so there's a lot of different stuff you can go check it out it's mapped out what's in what tiers and whatnot um and yeah that's pretty much what we got for you we hope you enjoyed this you want to leave us a review or anything feel free to do that and yeah check us out tuesday fridays and thanks for joining us on this hot mess express beep beep all right welcome back this is in the future to us, <laughs> but this is continuing on with the Jessica Chambers case. Um, this episode uploads in the next like seven hours and we got Google alerts on our account. So I wanted to let y'all know what's going on with that. At the end of the episode, I kind of talked about Quentin Tellis was supposed to be in court January 3rd of this year. That is actually, they have postponed it again. Um, the defense attorney is attempting to discredit a key piece of evidence in the case. So while in America you are guaranteed a quote-unquote speedy trial, we do have to consider that COVID has slowed a lot of this down. Yes. And on top of that, it's important to remember that Quentin is actively serving a 10-year sentence for the uh, credit, the debit card, the unauthorized debit card charge. So I do kind of feel like the prosecution and even the defense attorneys are kind of like dragging their feet with this because they do have another four years in his jail sentence. But I did want to let y'all know because I said that I would keep the Google alerts up and let you know what was going on with that. And <laughs> I mean, we recorded this episode a week ago and we got the Google alert last night. Episodes going up tonight and it's not much of an update, but at least we know that his trial is not happening right now. We're not just missing the news articles on it like I thought was happening. <laughs> the trial has been postponed again, yes. but that's the update. Not a whole lot else to add to that, but yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.